it's Flo, and this is my impression of a person having a phone conversation in the elevator. What? Yeah, no, I'm in the elevator. The elevator! Yeah! Anyway, I bundled our home and auto insurance through Progressive. No, bundled! We're gonna save big bucks now. No, bucks! Bucks! Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Hello? Hello? She hung up. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company Affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the T with Chris Mascaro. The show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host, to tell us who's next on the team. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again today on Next on the Tee. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort. They're Pete Dye and Donald Ross Design Courses, ranked number one and two in the state of Indiana, and uh, by Golf Week Magazine as well. It's the site of last year's Senior PGA Championship and the LPGA Legends Championship. Check them out online at FrenchLick.com. We're also sponsored by our friends over at the Leather Shop, makers of top quality custom-made leather, dress, casual, and golf shoes. Folks, do your feet a favor and put them inside shoes that are going to make them help them feel good and look good all day long. You can find them online at d-leather-shop.com. Also want to welcome our new friends and sponsor over at the World Golf Village, located in historic St. Augustine, Florida. It's also the home of the World Golf Hall of Fame. No matter the time of year, folks, or the length of your stay, the World Golf Village is sure to deliver an unmatched experience with uh, family, friends, and you're going to make memories there. They're going to last you a lifetime. For more information, visit them online at worldgolfvillage.com or give them a call at 1-800-948-4653. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have the extreme privilege of sharing two really great friends of the shows and great guests as well. First up is going to be Steve Monin. Steve is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, which operates the World Golf Hall of Fame, plus the first tee in golf 2020. He ranks annually amongst the most uh, powerful people in the game of golf and uh, always have such a great time when Steve is a part of the show. He'll be joining me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from PGA Tour Pro Kenny Knox. We'll get an update from Kenny on how things are going at his company, Kenny Knox Golf, and we'll also uh, talk about his memories from playing over at the Players' Championship, particularly his tie for 21st back in 1986. Plus, we'll get some short game and putting tips from Kenny to shave a, a few strokes off our scores this weekend. Kenny will be along with me a little bit later in this half hour. So we're going to have a lot of fun today. It's going to be another insightful show. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour or so. But before we get started, let's let's start the show off right, and that's by you know helping you get your morning started off right, and that's by checking out our friends over at Aroma Ridge because they offer an array of the finest grown mountain gourmet coffees that you're going to find anywhere. You can find them online at aromaridge.com. Their secret: hand selected beans from a variety of golf producing countries from around the world, and they roast those beans to per, uh, perfection by their very own roast master. And their coffees, folks, are roasted to order, so roasted specifically for you. If you like a little flavor in your coffee like I do, they have almost any flavor that you can imagine. Plus, you get the uh, opportunity to mix and match flavors if you want to create one of your very own. They've also got biscotti cookies. Oh, my goodness, the biscotti cookies, folks. And not only are their coffees great, but they're fantastic people as well. 
Check out all of their great products online at aromaridge.com. Next on the tee, like I say, is brought to you by our friends over at the French Lick Resort up in French Lick, Indiana. Folks, you want to talk about a spectacular resort to both play golf and just relax and enjoy yourself. Well, you're not going to find a better place anywhere than the French Lick Resort. Go to FrenchLick.com to see how you can do that for yourself and you know, book, and book your stay there. Plus, let's hear a word from our friends up there as well. Now's the time to plan that golf getaway you've been dreaming about at French Lick Resort. We have new Golf Academy packages for 2016, guaranteed to take your game to the next level. Try our one-day Quick Fix Academy for golf emergencies. For more in-depth learning, try the Game Changer, designed to make you a better player. Our staff professionals are ready to work with you at French Lick Resort. Did you know there's only one place in the country that you can play courses designed by two members of the World Golf Hall of Fame on the same property? The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort make us an ultimate golf destination for 2016. Check out the Ultimate Golf Package, the Hall of Fame Package, and other great offerings at FrenchLick.com. Let 2016 be that year you finally take your dream golf getaway at French Lick Resort. Play the courses champions play. Yeah, folks, I promise you, it is spectacular up there in Indiana. My family and I, we went up there last year looking forward to going back again this year. The French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. And oh, by the way, my friends, they have a casino right there on the property as well. For more information to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. And every week here on Next on the Tee, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in around the world today on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families are making to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans for all you and your families have done for us over the years. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Folks, if you see a member of our military when you're out and about, whether it's in the airport, at a restaurant, or just sort of out and about at the grocery store or wherever you may be, please stop for a moment and tell them thank you. They are our real heroes. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It is such an honor for us to have Next on the T part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. I also want to remind our veterans, please be sure to continue to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. It is a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information specifically geared towards our veterans out there that I'm, I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial for you. Again, globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now back with me in making his sixth appearance on the French Lick Resort line is Steve Mona. Let me remind you about Steve's background. He is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, the organization that manages the World Golf Hall of Fame, the first tee in golf 2020. Going back to the early 80s, he served as uh, tournament director of the Northern California Golf Association. Then he became assistant manager for uh, press releases, uh, press relations, I should say, for the USGA and later the executive director of the Georgia State Golf Association. In November 1993, he became the CEO of the uh, Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, which he held until uh, the early part of 2008 when he assumed the role of CEO of the World Golf Foundation. Like I said at the, at the top of the show, he is annually named by Golf Digest and Golf Inc. magazines as one of the most powerful people in the game of golf. And I exci- I'm very excited to have him back with me next on the tee this morning. Steve, good morning, my friend. How have you been? Uh, very well, Chris. Uh, it's good to be back with you. I always enjoy my time with you. I ah, appreciate that very much. 
Steve, when uh, I reviewed last September's edition of Golf Inc. Golf Inc. magazine, where you were once again named, you know, as amongst the, amongst the uh, most powerful people in the game, the article stated that you are, and, and I'm quoting here, the primary cheerleader for the golf industry, and your efforts have led to 1,200 publicity placements and more than 600 interviews since early 2012. So, a couple things with that, Steve. A Thanks for making this 601, and I'm honored to be 1% of the 600 interviews you've done over the last four years. And, and B, I, I, I got to be honest with you, Steve, when I read that, what immediately came to my mind was an episode of The Simpsons where it opens with Bart watching TV and an ad comes on for a new Star Trek movie, Star Trek 27, so very tired. And Sulu turns to Captain Kirk saying, Captain, Klingons off the starward bow. And Captain Kirk kind of puts his hand on his forehead again with the Klingons. It sort of, you know, when it comes to you, you're like, hey, Steve, we got another interview for you. Oh, another interview. Holy cow. It's, it's got to be tough for you every time you've got a free moment. There's someone like me banging on your door wanting to talk to you. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, I really enjoy it. And anytime I have an opportunity to talk about the game, uh, both from a business perspective and also as a sport and a pastime, it energizes me. So I never look at it as a burden. I always look at it as an opportunity. There you go. Steve, you know, one of the many things that I love about your organization, the World Golf Foundation, you know, you know, folks, please go check it out online, worldgolffoundation.org. One of the things I love is, you know, how you're trying to grow the game with, with junior golfers on the lady side as well. And, you know, you've got a newer site that you guys are promoting, golfforher.com, to help increase women's participation in the game. Talk about those two initiatives. Sure. So, uh, first of all, with respect to the um, women's initiative, we – about uh, four years ago, began to study how could we bring greater focus to increasing participation in the game among women. And ultimately, after a, a long process, we decided that a website, which ultimately became golfforher.com, was the best way to go about that. And the reason for that was that there are a number of programs that are available for girls and women and golf didn't need a new program, but what it did need was a focal point that women and girls could go to to provide an access point for them to get whatever information they need to engage with the game. So, so the, the analogy I would use is like the Atlanta airport. A lot of Most people don't go to Atlanta, but they go to the Atlanta airport to get where they're ultimately wanting to, to uh, arrive at, and so the same mm-hmm. is true of the golfforher.com website. So that's the whole premise of that. And then with respect to um, our efforts around junior golf, again, we're serving in a facilitative role. There are four programs that the golf industry has put its collective might behind, and they are PGA Junior League Golf, LPGA, USGA Girls Golf, Drive, Chip, and Putt, and the First Tee. So it's our role to help coordinate the marketing and promotional activities of those four initiatives. Mm-hmm. And and Steve, to, you know, to further you know grow the game, we've we've got National Golf Day coming up next week up up there on Capitol Hill. With this with this being an election year, how much more of an impact do you expect this year's event to have? You know, perhaps over some of the uh, uh, you know more recent years. Well, this is our ninth annual, and I would maintain that this is going to be our best and most impactful National Golf Day. For one thing, we have a record number of attendees. We're going to have north of 150 individuals, leaders from the game all over the country. We're going to conduct over 150 meetings 
during the day, we will have uh, Davis Love the third. The, this year's uh, Ryder Cup captain will have Steve Stricker. Mm-hmm. Next year's Presidents Cup captain will have World Golf Hall of Famer Nancy Lopez, Commissioner Tim Fincham. So we're going to have a great group of people helping to spread the word about the impact of golf on the economy, on charity, on our way of life. And ultimately, our objective is twofold. One is to educate members of Congress and other policymakers, and two is to protect the interest of golf uh, legislatively and from a regulatory standpoint. So it's very important, Chris, this being an election year. uh, Obviously, everyone's interest in politics is heightened in a year like this, so it makes it uh, extra important that we represent the industry, as we will do on uh, Wednesday of this coming week. Mm-hmm. And, and and to that point, Stephen, and we've talked about this, you know, a couple of times on the show, but I think it's, you know, always bears repeating you. You mentioned, you know, the impact that golf has on our economy. Remind our listeners about, you know, all the different businesses, the number of employees, the amount of revenue and tourism value that the game of golf has on our economy. It's pretty astonishing. I mean, first of all, there are uh, almost 2 million Americans whose jobs are impacted by the golf industry. Uh, Golf generates almost $70 billion in economic impact uh, toward the U.S. economy. And just to give some context for that, uh, golf is larger than the performing arts industry, and it's larger than the spectator sports industry, just to give people a sense of uh, our relative size. Yes. And what I often say is when people think of golf, they tend to think of people who play the game and maybe play it at its shall I say, kind of upper echelon um, private clubs. But the real faces of golf are the people who are working for, say, the club manager in the kitchen or in the restaurant or working for the golf course superintendent out on the golf course or working for the golf professional, um, bringing carts around and taking clubs on and off of carts. And, And those people are really the heart of the game and the face of the game. And so, that's why I, I like to say that golf really impacts every, everyday society uh, in every town and every city in America. And, and Steve, hand in hand with that, the other, the other number that I always like you to remind us about is the charitable contributions that the tours have, you know, and, and that the game generates. It's, it's an astounding amount of money that golf generates back and gives back to charities around the country. Do you mind sharing that again? Absolutely. Uh, Golf generates almost $4 billion a year for charity, and that comes primarily through about 75% of the nation's golf courses. So that's about 12,000 golf courses conduct, on average, 12 charitable events a year. So that's 144,000 charitable events a year. And that generates the lion's share of the nearly $4 billion that golf generates. And a couple other important points. Number one, golf generates more for charity on an annual basis than the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA combined do. And then secondly, almost all the money that gets generated through golf goes to causes outside of golf. Golf really doesn't generate much money at all for itself. It's generating money for the Cancer Society or the Diabetes Fund or the Humane Mm -hmm. Society, all of which are great charities. But um, golf is a very generous giving sport and there are about 12 million individuals who play in charitable golf tournaments a year which is close to 50 percent of the people who play the game period so i think that speaks well of our game and our industry absolutely it does 
Steve, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things around the game. First of all, you know, we've got, we've got golf returning to the Olympics for the first time since 1904. What do you think it's going to do for the interest in the game and really viewership of the Olympics in, in, uh, in general? Well, first, with respect to interest in the game, it was actually our board, our World Golf Foundation board, uh, who was the driving force behind golf's bid to get back into the Olympics. And I, I was in all of those meetings, and I can tell you what we said was this, that there was nothing else that we could do that gave us the opportunity to grow interest and participation in the game on a global basis than to get golf back into the Olympics because we were in the Olympics in 1904, last time we were in the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was why we put so much emphasis on trying to get back in it wasn't necessarily about giving the world's top golfers another opportunity to compete in a high-level event. That's part of it without question, and that's where you generate the interest in the game. But it was more about we felt like this could create a greater level of interest and focus on the game worldwide than anything else we could do. Then as far as your second question about the, um, the visibility and the TV piece, uh, we believe that the – golf portion of the Olympics will be uh, very uh, highly tuned into, and we think it'll be a compelling competition. There'll be 60 men and it'll be 60 women. And we estimate we'll have about somewhere between 30 and about 34 countries represented in each competition. And we will have the, the best women and men's players in the world competing for Olympic glory. And we think that that's going to be, something for these these great uh, athletes who play our game that they've never been able to experience before. So my view is after all these athletes get one taste at, at the apple, so to speak, there'll be tremendous interest among the individual players to get back to the Olympics. Yeah, and to that end, you know, we've seen, you know, a couple of guys, you know, opting out of, you know, going down there is, is part of, you know, what, uh, what they're going to be missing out on, or, you know, you think, you know, those guys are going to be guys kicking themselves, you know, whether it's, you know, right while the games are going on and whether they decide to watch it at home or not, you know, or once they start talking to the players who are a part of, you know, the whole Olympic experience, right? It's not just playing, you know, a couple of rounds of golf. It's, you know, it's the Olympic experience, right? It's, you know, it's pride in your country. It's, it's getting to walk in the ceremonies. It's the, you know, you're, you're, you know, standing on the podium potentially with the national anthem playing all of those sorts of things. Do you think those guys, once, once it's actually over, are going to kick themselves and going to make sure that, you know what, next time around, I'm going to make sure my schedule, if you will, is clear so I can be a part of it. Here's what I think will happen. I think when the players who compete in the Olympics, come back and they're back out on tour and they're talking to some who either didn't qualify or who may have qualified but elected not to play, they're going to talk in such glowing terms about their Olympic experience apropos to the point you were making, Chris. It's more than just a competition. I think that from that point forward, any eligible athlete golfer will play in the Olympics. I think this is going to be a one-time uh, event where a few players decided not to play who might otherwise have been eligible. And I really believe that's what's going to happen. And to that end, right. And it's, you know, that offshoot of it, Steve, you know, the sort of the theme of the original question, do you, do you expect that the Olympic games and now you're going to have hundreds of millions of people from around the world, all focused in, you know, on watching this event. And when golf is on, I got to imagine, and, I, and I'm sure it's part of what you guys had the conversation about. It's got to inspire young people to want to get want to get involved and start playing the game don't you think 
Yeah, no question about it. And so we, we really think two things will come from it. One, we believe that there will be more interest and participation in the game worldwide, and particularly in countries where golf hasn't been part of the culture, the sporting culture. Uh, we think you'll see over time, it's not going to happen in one year, but over time, and it may be generational, but you have to take a long view here. We believe it will have a positive impact on participation. And then you use the word inspiration, and that's the, the second term I use when I describe golf's involvement in the Olympics, and that is to inspire young people to aspire to what they see on television. And mm-hmm. whether it's a young kid who already is playing the game and maybe he's playing three other sports and he says, you know what, I really want to dedicate myself to golf and I really want to try to get where I see whoever it was I saw my fellow countrymen uh, stand up on that podium. Um, or if it's someone who never played the game and say, I really like the game. I like that particular player, fellow countrymen perhaps, and I, wa- I want to play that game. I, that is going to happen, and there there are a number of examples of that in, in sports when they came into the Olympics. Women's tennis is a great example of that, particularly with uh, now the Russians, previously Soviet Union. Um, you can trace a lot of that interest in tennis back to when golf became, or pardon me, when tennis became part of the Olympics. And I think the same is going to happen for golf. Steve, you know, as as we you know kind of continue to expound on the idea of bringing more people into the game, you know, one one of the bigger barriers to getting more people to play is you know always been you know how much the game costs, right? Whether it's between the equipment, the golf balls, lessons, greens fees, you know, golf isn't you know a, an inexpensive sport to play. Is there a sense of urgency with folks inside the game to make it more affordable for people to play? Yeah, absolutely, and there's really two ways that we're going about that. One is. There, there are different ways to consume golf than the traditional 18-hole green grass golf course and all that goes with it. We obviously want people to engage in that experience. Don't get me wrong. But there are other ways to engage. Uh, there's, for instance, top golf. Is, is, it's golf. It's obviously in a completely different environment, but you have a club mm-hmm. in your hand, you're striking a golf ball, um, and there are 5 million uh, visitors to top golf each year. There's um, uh, going to a driving range. 15 million people did that uh, last year, including 4 million non-golfers, or I should say people who don't play at a green grass facility. There's screen, screen golf, um, very, very popular in South Korea, uh, but uh, it's also known as simulator golf, but there are about 4 million people in the United States that participated in that last year. So that's one piece of it, Chris, is to think – a bit more broadly about how you can engage yeah. in golf. It that's one. But two then goes to, well, now I want to participate in that green gas experience. I want to go out to that golf facility. I want to play ultimately 18 holes. And there are a lot of facility operators that are being very creative about ways to bring people to the game. Get Golf Ready, for instance, which is our industry's adult player development initiative. Five lessons, $99 is a suggested retail and you don't have to own equipment. The facility will loan you equipment. You can't keep it, but you can use it while you're out there engaging and get golf ready. Uh, obviously, they have range balls, and then that is a way to get introduced to the game. And what I tell people is, look, there are ways to be creative about your spending on the game until you realize whether you really want to commit to it or not. If you look at all the the major equipment manufacturers, almost all of them have uh, a pre-owned program where you can buy used equipment. 
there are a lot of entrepreneurs in the game that have created uh, websites that sell used equipment, and it's pretty good equipment. And so if you just work at it a little bit, you can really overcome that, that whole cost issue piece. And even with respect to when you play golf, you don't have to necessarily try to play at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. If you play at twilight hours, uh, some place, some facilities have uh, a program where if you get off before the first group and you zip around and play nine holes, you can, you can get in nine at a reduced rate. So there's, if you're a, a savvy shopper, you can consume golf in a in a reasonable fashion. And then when you realize if you're going to really be committed to the game, then if you want to invest in fitted equipment and brand-new, top-quality equipment from the top manufacturers, fine. But that's after you're committed to the game. So my view is that if you want to work at it, you can play the game and, and overcome the cost uh, issue, if you will. Another another thing that uh, can help us, you know, potentially bring the cost of playing the game down. And Mr. Nicholas, for years, has been advocating to have the golf ball sort of dialed in. If, if the ball flew, you know, 20% less far, golf courses would need, you know, they need less acreage. There'd be less maintenance. So, you know, golf courses, you know, the, today it seems like they got to compensate for guys, you know, like Jason Day, who's, you know, flying the ball off the tee, you know, 350, 390 yards sometimes. So, if, Steve, if courses needed less acreage, they would also need less water. There'd be less maintenance. And hopefully all of that would translate into, into cheaper greens fees. So is, is dialing the ball back getting any sort of traction at all within the sport? Well, there, there's obviously discussion about that, and I know how Jack feels about that. And I, I think in, in a vacuum, most people uh, understand and probably agree with this premise. But let me tell you what's really happening in the marketplace and it's a little bit of a different door into the same room, but there are now golf facilities that are being repurposed and say it was 180 acres. And now it's going to be, you're you're still going to have 18 holes of golf, but it's going to be say on 120 acres now. And what happens is the, the, the course gets redesigned. It's on a tighter, more compact piece of property and the other acres, so in my example, that's 60 acres now have been, quote, freed up. And that gets turned into another real estate use, which then offsets the cost to repurpose and redesign uh, the golf course. And, uh, for instance, here, I live in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, a couple towns to the north here, Atlantic Beach. Um, what used to be called Selva Marina Country Club is now Atlantic Beach Country Club. And Eric Larson, the golf course architect and his colleagues repurpose that and that is a perfect example the people love the golf course it's on a more compact piece of property costs less to maintain and on an ongoing basis it'll be more uh, economical to operate and then but yet they also created a number of acres that are now being developed into residential real estate so that's really a win-win and you're going to see more of that either in terms of repurposing or in original design because we're still opening up. Last year we opened up 17 golf facilities in the United States, and that number's starting to pick up. So you'll see more original design that'll be more in keeping with that to, to, to make the experience fun, to make the experience a little quicker, shall I say, not as much forced carries or uh, penal kinds of penalties if you, if you stray off the fairway, much more playable, enjoyable. And good architects can make golf courses very – challenging for great players by having certain tee placements and hole locations 
Um, so I think you're going to see, Chris, a move away from let's build a, the toughest golf course we can build because if we happen to have a professional tournament here, then we have a good golf course for them to play on. It's more, hey, let's build this golf course for the 99% of the people who play it recreationally, but yet mm-hmm. let's have some tees and hole locations that if we do happen to get a professional tournament, we have a challenge for them. And I think the paradigm has shifted and will continue to. I'm talking with Steve Mona here on Next on the Tee. And, Steve, uh, you know, one more before we let you go. As, as I'm sure you heard in the intro, you know, one of our new sponsors is the World Golf Village. And as the CEO of the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame, if you will, is, you know, talk about you know, what people can see and why they need to be going to the World Golf Hall of Fame because it's a wonderful place. Well, yeah, let me just answer that uh, by making two points, Chris. First, the, the World Golf Village itself is just the way I describe it, and I, and I drive every morning to work there, um, it's Disneyland for adults who are golfers. That's the only way you can describe it. Still to this day, and I've been driving every day now for over eight years into my office, um, I still get a little flutter uh, when I drive into the, the property. You've got the Renaissance Resort. You've got two honors golf golf courses, one designed by Sam Snead um, and Gene Sarah's, and the other by Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. Uh, you have a timeshare there. Then, of course, you have the World Golf Hall of Fame, which leads to my second point. Gary Player, who's our global ambassador, says it best. If you love golf, you have to go. I will tell you this. The, the average visitor spends a little north of three hours in the Hall of Fame. So if you're, if you're going to come, uh, do yourself a favor. Dedicate that kind of time. If you can't, you can still get through it quicker. But I'm telling you, there's just no place like it. Uh, it's constantly evolving. We um, ha- have now, over the last couple of years, uh, added uh, three new exhibits, including the first ever tribute to African Americans' contributions to the game. Uh, so it, there's something for everyone there. We have a 18-hole uh, grass putting course. We have a challenge hole that's uh, inspired by the 17th hole of TPC Sawgrass. We have an IMAX theater. We have a restaurant. We have a gift shop. So. Bring your kids. Uh, it's a great experience. There you go. And Steve, before we let you go, um, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the things that, uh, that you're doing, uh, whether that's online or over social media as well? Well, I, I, one thing I'm particularly interested in, in uh, saying and responding to your question, Chris, is with National Golf Day coming up on Wednesday this week, we have a – uh, social media campaign underway right now. We launched it on May 1. It runs through May 31, and it's hashtag NGD16. Last year, we had 37 million impressions through that um, social media campaign. This year, we hope to exceed that. So that's one way people can engage and help. Another uh, two ways, uh, wearegolf.org. We talked about National Golf Day and our government relations efforts. Um, that would be a way to engage also. And then um, golf2020.org um, would be the other way to tune in to and find out more about a number of programs that we've spoken about here this morning. That's fantastic stuff. Steve, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning. Again, you know, with all the interviews that you do, it's, I'm, you know, I'm sort of I'm humbled and uh, very excited to, that, uh, you know, you continue to be a part of the show. We love having you here. We hope you'll con- continue to come back and join us and keep us up to date with all the great things that you and the World Golf Foundation are, are doing as well, because uh, it's, uh, it's always such a great time getting the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with you. 
Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. I enjoyed very much being with you, and I'm delighted to uh, come back whenever you'll have me. Uh, anytime, my friend. Steve, in, in between that, uh, the next time, all the best to you and your family and uh, everyone over at uh, the World Golf Foundation. Again, thank you for being here this morning. You're welcome. Good to be with you, Chris. Take care, Steve. That is Steve Mona, again, uh, the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, and they operate a lot of, uh, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, sub subparts, if you will, particularly the World Golf Hall of Fame, the first tee, you know, Golf 2020, Steve just mentioned. So, again, World Golf Hall of Fame, folks, uh, I've had the uh, privilege of going there once. I'll be going back uh, a little bit later this summer as well to take in all the new exhibits. So, please check it out. Make, uh, make sure it's on your list of things to do. I, I, I agree with Steve, as we hear Gary Player talk all the time. If you love the game of golf, you really do have to go. All right, before we get to my next guest, Kenny Knox, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at the World Golf Village, folks. It is located in historic St. Augustine, Florida, just south of Jacksonville. World Golf Village is, you know, it's the ultimate golf vacation and destination and a true paradise for uh, those of us that are fans of the game. The Village as it's often retur- uh, referred to by locals, is the home of the World Golf Hall of Fame, where, hey, they, they got the you know, world's greatest players are there, right? Contributors, contributors to the game are honored there. includes more than 70,000 square feet of displays, trophies, personal memorabilia. The World Golf Village also boasts, as Steve just mentioned a moment ago, two championship courses, including the King and the Bear, which was co-designed by Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, and the Sam Snead and Gene Sherrs and Masterpiece, the Slammer and the Squire. So golfers looking to tune up your game. They also, you know, boy, what a wonderful golf school at the PGA Tour Golf Academy, featuring the latest in learning technologies and world-class instructors there as well. Steve also mentioned the Renaissance Resort there. Wow, what a luxurious place that is to, to stay. So they've got, they offer an array of amenities and dining options and premier services as well. So Matt, no matter the time of year or the length of your visit, the World Golf Village is sure to deliver an unmatched experience with family, friends, that you're going to make memories that are going to last you a lifetime. For more information, go to golf, uh, worldgolfvillage.com. Again, worldgolfvillage.com or give them a call, 1-800-948-4653. I'll get to my next guest, Kenny Knox, on the other side of this station identification. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now back with me making his fourth appearance on the French Lick Resort guest line is Kenny Knox. Let me remind you about Kenny's background. He is from not too far down the road from me here in Atlanta. He's from Columbus, Georgia. Played his uh, college golf at Florida State and was named an All-American his senior season. Kenny won three times on the PGA Tour at the 1986 Honda Classic, the 87 Hardy's Golf Classic, and the 1990 Buick Southern Open. He's also one of the best putters of all time. In 1989, he set three records. And one tournament at the MCI Heritage Classic. He had eight putts over nine holes, 18 putts over 18 holes, and 93 putts over 72 holes. He is currently a teaching professional down there in Tallahassee, Florida. He's got a great line of putters and wedges, folks, that uh, you need to go check out online at KennyKnoxGolf.com. They really look fantastic. And I'm honored that he is back with me again this morning and next on the tee. Good morning, Kenny. Thanks for coming back on the show. Good morning, Chris. It's always a pleasure to be back with you. So, Kenny, let's let's start off getting an update on how things are going over at uh, Kenny Knox Golf. Talk about all the great stuff you've got going on there and, uh, and, and you know, brag about your putters and wedges. Look absolutely outstanding, Kenny. It was fun listening to Steve talk about the Hall of Fame. You know, when I did set the putting record, I submitted that putter to uh, the Hall of Fame. And if you look around close, you may just find it in there. But anyway, that 
like I tell people, the older I get, the better I used to be. So <laughs> we're having we're having we're having a great time with Kenny Knox Golf Company. We are really expanding out, doing a lot of demo days. Uh, just headed up to East Lake, uh, side of the Tour Championship uh, this uh, later this year uh, to do a demo day up there. Uh, I'd like to go back there and do it. But we got a lot of putters in Atlanta, out at Cherokee, and also at uh, Capital City Club in Atlanta. We've got a few over there at Peachtree and quite a few at East Lake. And uh, the putter business is doing well. I had a great, great April, thanks to the Masters. Went and spent time with uh, my friend Tommy Brandon over at Augusta Country Club the week of the Masters and set up over there and had a couple of really good days with a lot of a lot of people coming in for corporate golf and what an incredible show they put on that week. And it's just been a really a great week, a uh, great month this uh in May has uh, not let me down at all either. We just keep going. I've just uh, signed a deal with Avala Golf and Country Club down in Tampa, Florida, to be uh, a, pretty much a guest instructor down there twice a month. I go down and teach two or three days twice a month. And that is a fabulous facility with some really, really great people. I'm thoroughly enjoying that. Uh, so we're doing we're doing the teaching and we're doing the putters. And I'm actually doing a little playing, Chris, believe it or not. A couple of weeks ago I played the North Florida PGA section match play championship. It's our first major. And I, I man, I ran through the field uh, like I couldn't believe. I got I, I caught lightning in a bottle that week and won the championship. Beat a former tour player, Jeff Leonard, on the 18th hole. And so that was a fun to get that win. There you go, Kenny. That's awesome. Congratulations. So, Thank you. Kenny, talk, you know, talk about your Transformer putter series because they, they look absolutely amazing online. And you've got several varieties of putters that are available. And if I'm, if I'm looking for better performance from my putter, talk about the different shafts, whether it's center shaft or heel shaft. You know, why might I like or need one versus the other? Well, you know, it's according to your stroke and also the way that you line up to the putt. Uh, so many people uh, just go in and buy a putter off the rack. It doesn't necessarily – we start with the fitting process, Chris. So you, you, you want to get fit for putter just the same way you would with a driver or your irons. But the putter is as a putter – you use it about, uh, what, 42% of the time when you're playing a golf around the golf. So it's, it's highly important that you have one that fits you properly. So we fit for length and we fit for lie angle, first two things. We determine which putter you should be using for the way you line up. For instance, if someone tends to line up to the right uh, target from 15 feet, then uh, and they're consistently doing that with, say, an uh, offset putter, one that's uh, like a plumber's neck or, or a double bend shaft or something like that, then you want to bring them back down. You want to get them back uh, to the middle so you would go with less offsets. That would bring that would bring their their direction in which they point the putter back to their target where uh, it's supposed to be. Now, uh, adversely, if, if they were lined up too far to the left and they were using a no offset putter, then you would put them in a more offset putter and get them back to the center as well. So it works. It's quite interesting. It's very consistent. I would say it's about to line up a certain direction uh, when they set the putter down. They may be too far right or too far left. There's about uh, I'd say 20% of the people that are all over the board, Chris. You just can't hardly dial them in. They're right and left, depending on the putters that you put in their hands. And so they're very difficult to fit. But uh, 
then it's just a process of working with them on their mechanics. And then it's about 5% of the people, and I, I call Jack Nicholson to my 5% club because when I fit Jack one day for uh, his putter, his Knox putter, uh, he, it didn't matter which putter I put in his hand. Uh, you know, even though he's, uh, he's up there in his mid-70s now, he can still line up a putter as good as anybody. And he lined every one of them up dead center in the target, which was fantastic to see. So he prefers the offset putter, the one that's got, uh, say, the plumber's neck on it. So that's basically what happens in the alignment process. So I talk about three things in, in fitting people and putting. The, the first is the alignment, which is ultra important. The second is the mechanics of the stroke. And then the third is simply trust. And I feel like if I could get somebody lined up properly, uh, it they start trusting me immediately because they, they can see where they're lined up and all of a sudden their confidence is going to start soaring. Now we work on the mechanics. If someone's real handy in their stroke, they're always going to have a problem. But what I recommend is a connection factor in which they, uh, they set their hands in a certain position and address, make sure they're lined up properly, and then you just simply maintain the unit uh, between the shoulders, arms, hands, and putter head, and you just rotate the shoulders back and through and the putter will swing on a perfect arc back and through. And when it does that, then you don't have to make up any, uh, make any compensations in your stroke to square the putter face up at impact because ultimately that's what you want to do is the putter to be square at impact if you're lined up properly. So that's all pretty much everything in, in, a, in a thimble there, but in a short period of time. And uh, that's the way it works, Chris. So, Kenny, is, is you know, based on, you know, uh, I guess what is it based on when when we look at you know the head of the putter, whether it's a mallet head or a blade head, is that is that a feel thing that you know uh, that we choose, or is one type of head better for us based on something else, based on how we set up or how we stroke the ball, or just even look to our eye? Yeah, the main thing is you try to match up the stroke. So if someone has a very square to square stroke, then then they're going to need to be in a face balanced putter. If their stroke is more in an arc with the putter face opening up slightly, uh, you know, say five to six degrees at six inches, then they're going to want to be in more of a heel shaft type putter. But for people that have a difficult time lining the putts up, they may want to go into the mallet uh, because it has long, uh, a better sight line on it with a longer line. And so that allows them to, uh, you know, and you can also put the line on your golf ball and then match that line in your golf ball up with that long line on that mallet putter. And so that's what we design our mallets. Uh, we have a long line on it, and it's a symmetrical-looking putter. It can be used right-handed or, or left-handed according to where you bore the, uh, the shaft hole in it. And so it's uh, very symmetrical, very easy on the eye, good-looking. And we have, Chris, we have uh, 12 left-handed putters in our lineup which would be two blades with, with two different bore holes. So it would be uh, heel shaft to center shaft. And so you can use those right-handed and left-handed, six right-handed, six left-handed, with the four different hosel configurations being the straight end, offset, the plumber's neck, and the double bend. And so that gives you 12 putters right-handed, 12 putters left-handed in our transformer fitting system uh, putter line. And then I've got my record series putters, which I think are are really special. That's this is more for uh, people that are very uh, you know detailed in the putting, like that classic look, just a beautiful putter that uh, has 
has my record series on it. So the, it's the 18 putts for 18 holes and the 93 putts for 72 holes. And we're currently designing the putter also eight putts for nine holes. So that's in my record series line. So I, I like to tout that I've got uh, 26 different uh, styles of putters that someone can choose from uh, when they go to my website, the KennyKnotsGolf.com website. And, and Kenny, you keep referring to Plumber's Neck. Talk talk about what does that mean? What's Plumber's Neck? Well, most people know, you know, Carson Solheim actually uh, is such an innovator in the in the putting industry, and he everybody pretty much remembers the original uh, ping putter he used. But then he came up with the answer, the A N S E R, and that answer had a Plumber's Neck on it. So the the shaft is what it basically is. The shaft is is one shaft in front of the face of the putter. So the shaft goes down, and it it, it hits the the, uh, the hosel, and the hosel goes back towards the putter face, and then back down. So you have one shaft uh, of uh, in front of the putter face, which gives you that offset that you're looking for. But mm-hmm. if anybody can relate it to the answer putter, which has been copied ever since Carson uh, invented that back in the 70s, uh, you know, Scotty Cameron's made a lot of money with that with that uh, that same look. And pretty much everybody has, and that's the standard in in putting is the uh, offset plumber's net. Kenny, switching gears a little bit uh, over to some of the videos that you've got available on your site, and uh, we talk an, an awful lot on this show about sort of the mental side of the game, and and you say good technique eliminates bad nerves. What are some things that we can do in our minds to keep us focused, particularly when we've got those you know three to four foot uh, knee knockers? Right. Well, we go back there solid. The, the three or four foot knee knockers are very simple if you have a good alignment and you have good mechanics. And then it's just a matter of trusting your stroke. You know, the pace of your stroke is so important. Uh, when we when we get handsy in our stroke, we can never be consistent with our with our pace. But when you're using the shoulders to to move the connection between those shoulders, arm, hands, and putter head. Then you can then you can kind of uh, gauge the pace of the stroke uh, as you and the speed in which you want to hit the golf ball. So that's why it's very important the connection. Once you get set up properly and you, your shoulders just rock back and through, then you just trust that the putter head is going to be squared impact. And so that's what I talk about the psychology of putting. It's uh you know when we get a little anxious, we get a little quick in our stroke transition gets fast. The putter head stays behind, and the putter head stays open at impact. That's why you see so many putts miss short to the right uh, when you have a fast transition. Now, uh, there's many things that can happen when that happens. You can panic, and you can release the putter too early, and then it typically goes long and left. So if you have a consistent, uh, what I call like a grandfather, uh, you know, pendulum uh, stroke using the shoulders, arms, hands, and putter head, then you can be consistent in, your, in the pace of your stroke, which is ultra important. And, Kenny, it's, it's interesting. I wanted to get your thoughts because if you look back at some of the historical golf videos, you go back and you look at stuff you know, from the from the 60s, maybe early 70s and the 60s and that sort of thing. You look at Arnold Palmer and some of the greats that were playing the games back then. 
the putting stroke was very handsy, it seems to me. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong, because you know more about this certainly than I. But it looked like they were, you know, they break, you know, breaking their wrists and that sort of thing, and they were putting more hands. And it wasn't the the sort of the lock in the wrist and the pendulum thing that you know stroke that we see today. At, at what point did it, you know, did did someone look at that and say, you know what, that that wristy thing's got to go? Oh, that's a very simple answer to that, Chris. I tell you, it's the technology, the way the technology's evolved as a result of the way that the greens are being kept. So back in the day, even Augusta National did not have fast greens back in the day. And so because of the turf management and, the, you know, the technology, the, the way that they mow the greens, the way that the new grasses, all the hybrid grasses, all the ways that they can get the ball rolling at its fastest and still have a, a good uh, surface to put on, you know, with good dense t- uh, uh, turf, you actually, with Bobby Jones putting and those guys, they would putt with about six degrees loft from the putter just to get the ball up in the air so it would not be digging in from the very beginning. So you had to get the ball in the air to get it to rolling and turning over. And then still you could never get a consistent stroke because the grain was so prevalent. And even on the uh, the northern courses were, you know, much, much, uh, much better to putt on because of the bent grass. There was very little grain in them but you had to deal with the contours of the green. So, therefore, you know, when I first came out on tour, Tom Weisskopf, he told me that he had two sets of irons, one for the south, one for the north, because the grasses were so different. And you take different divots up in Ohio than you do in Florida. And so the technology is, is really accommodating the conditions of the golf course. For those guys, they had to be flippy wristed. That's why you saw so many bad putters. Ben Hogan was a horrible putter. Sam Steve was a horrible putter. But they were the greatest ball strikers that ever lived, that ever walked the golf course. So the reason for that is because you cannot consistently match up your hands at impact. And so I relate that to today's chipping. And so that's why I've developed a chipping technique that will accommodate and take the hands out of the chipping stroke because you always want to be able to return that club face back to square back to where you started the uh, alignment process. And you cannot do that if you're handsy. And some of these commentators on TV drive me crazy because all they do is talk about backing the ball up and getting steep with the uh, impact position with the loft of the club and using the leading edge to hit the chip. You cannot ever be consistent. And the more the pressure is, the, more, the harder and more difficult it is to get the club face on the golf ball. You want to learn to take the, your hands out of the stroke you want to maintain that connection in your stroke, whether it be chipping or putting. And I have a, a tournament-tested, proven technique to take the hands out of the stroke. If you, don't go to, if you do go to my website and go to my videos, you will see that technique, and you'll be quite amazed by it. And you may even learn how to uh, chip and putt just by simply watching the technique and not even having to take the lesson. But you've got to take the hands out of the stroke. That's why we never had consistent putters. Uh, Arnold Palmer and uh, was a, a very good putter when he was winning all those golf tournaments. But when he start, started missing putts, it was simply because he could not control his hands any longer. Hmm. And, Kenny, I had Eric Johnson on the show last week. He's the director of golf up at uh, Oakmont Country Club, you know, obviously the site of this year's U.S. Open. And, you know, he said the, the greens are going to be, you know, firm and fast like they always are up at Oakmont. He said, you know, the greens are going to be, you know, he talked about Augusta National. He's like, hey, the greens at Oakmont are going to be way faster than what we see at Augusta National, if you can imagine that. But how, how do you deal 
with greens that might be rolling a, a 14 or maybe even a 15 on the stem? Well, typically they're fast because of the contour. If you had just a flat surface, they may, they're going to run in a 14. But when you start adding contour, they, there's no way. If a 14 turns into a, a 28 because of the contour in the green, so you have to learn to putt away from the hole. And you have to learn where the flat spots are. See, they, they don't put the hole on a slope. It may be on a 2% grade at the very most. But typically the holes are usually set on a flat surface. So when you're putting, you're not necessarily putting straight at the hole. You're, you're having to putt. I mean, even if it's a 12-foot putt, you may have to putt six feet to the right of the hole, let it hit that peak, and then, and then it can start to sit down the, down the hole. So you have to learn to putt away from the hole when the greens are that fast, that much contour. And that's why Oakland is so so uh, diabolical in, on the greens. It's because of the, the contours on the greens. And the speed, yes, the speed is up because the greens are so good and they keep them rolled and they have a perfect combination. But the slope of the greens, just like a wing foot or somewhere like that, well, there's great contour on the greens. Augusta National is another reason that the greens are so fast is because of the contours on the green. And you really can't even imagine it until you get on those playing surfaces. It's something that we really don't see that much here in Florida, but you may see it some up in Atlanta. Now, that also dictates the, the speed of the green. Typically, you don't want to have 14 on the stem when you have a lot of contour, a lot of slope on the green. So they're, they back them down a little bit. That's why you see putts downhill so fast and putts uphill so slow. And Kenny, you've you've got, you know, as you mentioned a moment ago, some really great short game and bunker videos on your site again, KennyKennyKnox.com, KennyKnoxGolf.com. And for for short bunker shots, you've got a video showing you using a sixty degree wedge versus a sand wedge. Talk about using your sixty degree wedge to get out of the bunker when you when you've got only a short uh, a, a short amount of green to work with. Well, it's not necessarily the, the reason you use a 60-degree wedge for a short amount of green. What you want to do uh, is is make sure that the 60-degree the, the wedge is, is typically around 8 degrees bounce on, on the bottom of the club, whereas a 56-degree wedge will have 12 degrees bounce on it. So if you have fluffy sand, you really want to use a club that has more bounce on it because it won't gig on you so much. And so the... the common denominator in the bunkers is always going to be keep the club face open uh, at the start, in the backswing, at impact, and when you finish. And so when you can do that, you can control the distance as to which way you want to hit the ball. And you, I always play a high percentage stand shot. I'm not trying to spin the ball. I'm not trying to see how fast I can make the ball stop. What I'm trying to do is see how, how soft I can allow the ball to land. So then when it rolls, it's not rolling fast, it's rolling slow. That's how you control your distance control out of a bunker. Typically, I use a 60-degree most places in a, uh, just about everywhere I go in bunkers because I, I tend to add so much loft at impact when I'm in a bunker. So I'm using the bounce so well in the bunkers, whereas most, especially, you know, handicapped golfers, they're using the leading edge of the club, and the club is digging down in the bunker, they can't complete their swing, so they have no feel whatsoever uh, to get that ball out and control the distance if they even get it out. So if you can learn to use the balance of the club, determine when you're. Let's just look at it this way: if you're on, excuse me, if you're on hard pan, you want the least amount of bounce possible. 
if you're in high grass, you want the most about, amount of bounce possible because you've got grass underneath the ball. So that would be a good rule of thumb. The short bunker shots are simply distance control through speed control. Just don't swing as hard and fast out of a short bunker and leave the club face open throughout the swing, and you'll see the ball come out nice and soft. Now, there are ways to get the ball up in the air quicker, and that's always going to be by adding loft. The best way to do that is to hinge the club up and then unhinge it coming down. So I look at it like if you're standing up against a wall and the, the club face is pressing up, the, the, the toe of the club is against the wall, when you swing up, that, that club goes straight up the wall, straight down the wall, and then straight back up the wall. Don't let that club ever come off the wall when you're hitting a bumper shot. You always want that the toe of the club on the wall up, down, and up. And then you can leave the club face open and you can control your distance, whether it be a short bumper shot or a long bumper shot. A long bumper shot, you just hit the ball closer. Uh, you hit the, uh, the sand closer to the golf ball rather than further away. And Kenny, let, let's switch gears again and talk a little bit about your uh, your playing career. So, you know, as I talk about, you know, we 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 talk men, you know, about the mental side of the game a lot here on Next on the T. And, and you won the the '86 Honda Classic by one stroke over Andy Bean, Jody Mudd, John Mahaffey, and Clarence Rose. Despite having shot an 80 and a gale force wind in the third round, you came back to shoot two under par 70 in the final round. Talk about how you were able to kind of put that third round behind you and come back, you know, the next day and shoot a good final round and end up ultimately winning the golf tournament. Well, that's a great – I'm so glad you brought that up. My, my friend Tommy Roy with NBC Sports, he was uh, associate director of that tournament. And uh, I saw him at the PGA Merchandise Show this year, and he said, hey, do you want me to send you a video of when you won the Honda? Great. So he sent me the disc, and I reviewed it over – you know, after I after I got it, and you know, I had never won a tournament. I think I had one top ten in my career uh, up to that point, maybe two. But I was, you know, I was just another struggling pro, and I actually Monday qualified to win that tournament. So I'm out there with nothing to lose, basically, and everything to gain. When I watched that, the way I handled myself and conducted myself, it blew me away that I was able to. Uh, even though I was super nervous inside, I was able to maintain my composure throughout that whole tournament. The only time I really lost lost my composure was on that last green when I three-putted and when I missed that short putt to win by two strokes. Uh, and that would have eliminated anybody tying me on the last hole, the group behind. So I had to dodge two bullets there with Andy Bain and Clarence Rose putting for birdie on 18. And when I did, of course, I won the tournament. But I went from shooting 80 on Saturday, which, you know what, I pretty much accepted that because I actually hit the ball very well. The average score that day was 79.2. So I was very little off of the low score that day was 72. I played with Tom Weisskopf that day, and he shot 87. He would be mad at me for telling everybody that. (laughs) It was the most most difficult day of, of golf that I've ever experienced. Uh, and it it was just really a, a a test to see who could finish. And there were so many high scores that day. A lot of people were so happy they missed the cut because a day like that can actually ruin your golf swing. It can really ruin your golf swing and your confidence. Well, when I went out talking about the mental side of the game, I was hoping that, that it was going to lighten it, a thunder or a storm or something on Sunday so I wouldn't have to play any more golf. 
because I was in fourth place and I was happy with that. I was getting ready to get my biggest paycheck. When I went to the range that day and I was hitting balls, I was really hitting the ball as well as I hit it the first two days and even the third day without all the wind. So I felt very confident in my swing. And when I walked off of the practice range, Chi-Chi Rodriguez met me. And Chi-Chi and I were friends. And he said to me, Kenny, hey, pardon. He used to call, you know, he, he called me uh, Fort Knox. He'd love to call me Fort Knox. But he said, Fort, hey, Fort, you know, you could win this golf tournament. And it, it dawned on me, what are you talking about? I didn't win. I hadn't really even thought about winning the golf tournament because I just shot 80. And so I started, wow, okay. And then I went over the putting green, and I was there, and my good friend Hubert Green was a Florida State Seminole. Neither one of these guys had even made the cut, but they were on. They were on the. They were practicing, getting ready for the uh, Doral the next week. And Hubert Green looked at me and said, "You know, Kenny, you can still win this golf tournament." And I kind of took that as like, "Man, it got me thinking the right way." And I went out hard and two, and I chipped in on three for birdie. I made a long putt on four for birdie. I made another birdie on five. And so I was back in the lead of the golf tournament in a very short period of time. So now I was thinking about nothing but winning the golf tournament until that seventh hole came where I buried in the back bunker and I blasted the ball out of the bunker and the ball never stopped and went down over the bulkhead into the water. Well, <laughs> now pretty much my tournament was over because I didn't, I didn't know if I could handle that. So after going through the, the different options on where to drop the ball and things like that. I dropped it back in the bunker, risking that it would not plug on me. And when it did not plug, I got in the bunker, and Chris, I'll tell you, something magical really happened as I was standing over that ball. I was wagging the club. I wagged it one time, and I told myself, just fake it. And then I wagged it again and said, just fake it. And then at the time, as I said, just fake it, I drew the club back. And talking about a short bunker shot, it came out soft, as a butterfly with sore feet, and it hit that green and trickled down, and the whole crowd went absolutely crazy as that ball fell in the hole. And I made the greatest four that's ever been made in the history of a par three. <laughs> and I, I think I moonwalked out of the bunker and walked across that bri- uh, bridge to the next tee without even knowing how I got there. With all, now I had just captured 25,000 people were all on my team. And we put on cruise control and started making pars, and I made pars all the way around until I got to the 15th hole where I made a four-foot birdie putt, and I had a two-shot lead. And then I had a chip shot on 16, and Lee Trevino watching the replay said, there's no way he can get this within 15 feet, and I left it short the hole a foot. And then I two-putted 17, and, of course, I, I three-putted 18 is when I got out of my, out of my character there and walked out of my zone. And I started thinking about all the wonderful things that were getting ready to happen to me, playing the Masters for the first time, playing the Tournament of Champions, playing the World Series of Golf, and all the wonderful things that were getting ready to happen to me with the two-year exemption. And then that's when I lost my focus, and my putting stroke fell apart on that two-and-a-half-foot putt, and I pulled it like a, a, a uh, I can't even tell you, a guy missing a two-foot putt on the last hole to win $10 against his best friend. It was just maddening. And then I didn't know how I was going to make that foot and a half putt coming back for my third, for my third putt. I could hardly see my eyes glazed over. 
So to that end, Kenny, you know, continue the story. I mean, you know, so you sort of get ahead of yourself, right? On 18, it costs you the opportunity to win outright, right? And then how do you, how do you get it back? How do you, you know, you, you, you went from highs to lows, right? You make, the, you make the bunker shot and you feel really good about yourself, you know, coming away with bogey when it could have been, you know, much worse. And then you, you, get, you get through and now all of a sudden you think you're going to win, win this thing and you get a little ahead of yourself. Then all of a sudden you give it back. How did you get, you know, back again, refocused to go out and win it, you know, and, and, uh, and, and like I say, ultimately win the golf tournament? Well, you know, that was the that was the last hole. All I had to do was dodge a couple of bullets, but I, I could not – there's no way I would have won a playoff. I don't think I could have functioned properly uh, and won a playoff. It, there's just no way that would have happened because I was I was so much in into being – I was scared to death at that point of somebody's time. Yeah. And so I had never won a PJ Tour event. It was my first win. And so, you know – all I could do is, is grab my wife, hug her, and kiss her, and, and and we just, you know, we could just enjoy the moment together with my, my wife and my family, and it was just a magical moment. Uh, but I tell you, looking over this video, uh, I should I should start selling this video to uh, to golf schools because they could, if they're teaching psychology of golf, they need to watch this video and they need to train their students on how to handle themselves or if it wasn't myself, I'm not I hate to be bragging about myself, but I can't even believe that I had that much composure in that situation, Chris. But it's mm-hmm. the only way possible I was able to win the golf tournament. And it really wasn't me. I, you know, I know the Lord was looking down on me and, and it was working in my favor that week. And I just can't tell you how uh how difficult it was, but by the same token, how easy I made it because of the composure. I'm talking with Kenny Knox here on Next on the Tee. And, Kenny, uh, just a couple more before we let you go. That year as well, 1986, you finished tied for 21st at the Players' Championships with rounds of 71, 73, 69, and 74. Take us through playing that course and really what it's like to stand on the 17th tee box when you're trying to execute that tee shot under tournament conditions. Well, I'll give you a little history of that. you know, I was driving the ball incredibly well. I had a, a tailor-made driver with a Mizuno uh, shaft in it, and and I, I had a backup driver of the tailor-made with a uh, steel shaft in it. And so I got around the 16th hole the first round, and I hit the golf ball off that 16th tee, and my club head flew off of my shaft 50 yards down into the lake off the front tee. And my ball went 280 yards down the right side, just in the right rough. So now I was faced, that was my first nine holes of the golf tournament. Favorite driver on that tee box. So my buddy ran my car and went to the truck and got my backup driver. And I used it the rest of the week and then I used it the rest of the year. But uh, that was an interesting story. But I can tell you one thing tougher than standing on the 17th tee box at, at uh, TPC Sawgrass during the Players' Championship is standing on the tee box at number 17 at TPC Sawgrass during tour school. Yeah. <laughs> we played six, <laughs> six, six rounds of golf on that golf course. Having to play that hole six times, I, 
I hit that green right in the middle of the green all six times and played the hole one over par. I would walk up on the tee box, Chris, and never look at the flag position. Never one time did I ever look at the flag position. And I was so disciplined and just hit right in the middle of the green and wherever the ball ended up, it ended up. And I was so fortunate that I, I, I hit it all six times, playing with my good buddy Keith Clearwater, final round of tour school. He made a 10 on that hole, and he lost. He did not get his tour card that year. It wow. was sad. But it, that is the most diabolical golf hole. Kudos to Pete Dye. That is an, Ricky Fowler played that hole so many under par. Incredible. And then I was looking yesterday that Aaron Badley has played that hole 21 over par. He's got 13 balls in the water over his career on that hole. That mm-hmm. is some kind of that is the one hole that gets in your head like like no other. It's kind of like number 13 in Augusta, but it is an incredible feeling. And Calvin Pete once said, "Man, I was so nervous I couldn't even spit. And my mouth was so dry." <laughs> and <laughs> I, it's a good thing they got a big big thing of water on that tea box because. You know, it's the first thing people do when they walk in that tea box. They get a drink of water. It is <laughs> it is just, you have to do something to calm your nerves on that tea. And it's only a nine-iron shot. I was playing with Greg Norman one year, and we were peeing off the backside first. And, man, we were in the middle of the pack, peeing off the backside. And he was, I think, six under par through seven holes. And we came to 17, which was our eighth hole. And I'm thinking he's going to win the golf turn. All of a sudden, the whole crowd went from the front side to the back side to watch him play. And he hit, he hit, he had Bruce Edwards, the late Bruce Edwards on the back. And they hit eight iron. The pin was in the back right. And he flushed it. And it was just the most beautiful shot you ever saw until it hit the green and went over the green into the water. And that was the end of his tournament right there. Any, any hope to win the tournament. He had a nice final round of 68, but that, that only moved him up a little bit. And uh, we, we had a challenge match on the next night. So he beat me by a shot, but he did have to make a putt on the last hole to beat me. And then you got Lynn Matthijs. Lynn Matthijs was going to win that golf tournament. And I think he hit two balls in the, in the water on 17 there. He had the tournament wrapped up. And it was a shame to watch that happen because he was a local kid, nicest kid in the world, and he was having a great tournament. Watch out for bad things that happen there. It can happen. Even though Ricky Fowler dominated that hole last year, bad things can happen at any moment on that hole. Yeah, I imagine, you know, particularly if the wind kicks up at all, you, know, you want to talk about making a hard hole even harder, at least, you know, from a, even mentally when you're thinking, all right, now I got to land this ball on this, you know, on this island green, and I got winds to deal with and that sort of thing. Boy, that's really got to get in your head. The, the wind is the biggest factor there. It's not hard to hit the middle of the green with no wind. But most people will, you know, depending on their situation, you know, if they're trying to make a cut, like like I was I was watching Luke Donald yesterday, he was in the, the toughest position that back center pin. He's he's an even he's one under par, he's gotta make a birdie in the last two holes. Hits around top of the flag, he goes over in the water. He's gone down the road. It's a it's but the wind is the biggest factor in that hole. And watch where they line up. It, it will show a lot of character. That's why Ricky played the hole so well last year. And Tiger well, uh, Woods has always played that hole very well also. 
Kenny, um, you uh, alluded to it a little while ago, saying you're back out playing a little bit. Is, uh, is there a place that uh, our listeners might be able to catch you uh, out playing in a tournament uh, over the next couple of months? Well, my game is about as good right now as it's been for a very long time, and I would love to get back out and play some Champions Tour events. It's just going to make uh, it's just going to be after dedication thing of getting out and working on it. Uh, you know, my back is doing really well. I have a new medical device that's really helped me. That's that's really uh, I'm I'm not feeling any pain for the first time in 25 years. So it, it's just a fantastic. My body feels great. You know, my back feels young again. I can make a good turn. I can I can be patient at the top of my swing again. I'm playing really well. Right now, I'm just playing wherever I can to be competitive, and I'll try the U.S. Open qualifier and hopefully get in there and go up to Columbus, Ohio, play at Scioto, which is a uh, Jack Nicklaus's golf course that he grew up on, and uh, I would love to be there for the U.S. Open uh, this summer. And can you remind our listeners, again, how they can follow you both online and over social media as well? It's really easy. Just remember Kenny Knox Golf. Uh, and then just put the .com on the end of it or or whatever you want to do, but KennyKnoxGolf.com or KennyKnox uh, at gmail.com if you want to email me and uh, ask any questions. But go to my website, KennyKnoxGolf.com, and uh, you can email me. We can talk. You can watch my videos. You can order putters. You can call me. Well, I'm happy to talk with you about putting, uh, and hopefully I'll see you in a city uh, near you when I come and do some demo days. And I need to update my schedule a little bit. Kind of get behind all that because I've been so busy. Had any thoughts about doing it? <laughs> Kenny, thank you so much for being generous with your time and joining me again on the show this morning. It's always a privilege and a pleasure to get to spend some time with you. You're fantastic, my friend. Hey, the pleasure's all mine. I look forward to hearing from you again, Chris, and uh, let's talk. Absolutely. Kenny, I hope you'll come back again and, and, and join me soon. Share more of your thoughts and your insights with us. Always, always so great having you a part of the show. And in the meantime, all the best to you and your family, Kenny. Thank you, Chris. I love the military. There you go. Thank you for adding that. Take care, Kenny. We'll catch up soon. Okay. That is uh, Kenny Knox again, KennyKnoxGolf.com. And folks, you know, uh, great line of wedges and putters and the videos that Kenny has on his site are, are absolutely outstanding. So, you know, whether you're trying to, you know, learn how to, you know, punt, you know, a chip and run, whether you're look, looking to uh, do a short pitch shot, whether you're, you know, looking for putting instruction or out of the bunkers, like we talked about a moment ago, Kenny's got some great videos on there. Again, KennyKnoxGolf.com. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode. Before we close up shop, I want to remind you about our friends and our partner, PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes, and the great folks and the great things that they are doing over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear a word from Jim. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating 
listening, or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, they're doing some amazing things there at the uh, Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. Hi, everybody. My sincere thanks again to Steve Mona and Kenny Knox for making today's show so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me, my co-host Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe LaGianusha. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio. You can hear it on the Armed Forces Radio Network as well. That show, like this one, is also available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, and SoundCloud as well. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined every week by uh, legends and stars from around the NFL and the CFL as well. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. Plus, you can find us online, this show at nextonthetea.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, folks. Plus, stay up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be by checking out both sites online. Thank you again for choosing to listen to this show today. We know you've got a lot of choices out there for shows and podcasts to listen to. We really appreciate that you have made Next on the Tea with Chris Mascara one of them. Until next week. Hit him straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf. Great things are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better. Like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. Great things are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better. Like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. 